What's up, guys? Connor O'Hanlon here for another episode of the Con O Show. And today I am coming at you with a very special episode, one in which I'm going to be interviewing a candidate for the Bucks County Court of Common Pleas, and that's a tongue twister, but I got it out. And her name is Tiffany Thomas-Smith. She was so gracious to join me this morning, super early before work. And I want this to serve as my first endorsement as a chairperson of a local Democratic committee. And just as a preamble to this episode, you will note that this is something that you get as a committee person, as a chairperson in committees, so you can vote and you can endorse candidates in your local committee. So get involved, and we will discuss this even further, obviously, in this interview. So if you want to learn more, you can feel free to reach out to me after listening to this interview. So enjoy. Today joining me is Court of Common Pleas candidate Tiffany Thomas-Smith. She is uh, from Bucks County, obviously, because we are talking about the Bucks County Court of Common Pleas, which is very important, as we're going to be discussing, because of the 2021 election cycle, which I have my mug right here for the Vote Local interview series for the Doylestown Democrats. So if you guys are interested in learning more about other uh, positions, you can feel free to go check out the Doylestown Democrats Vote Local interview series. But today, I have a candidate that is running for the Court of Common Pleas. Tiffany, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, good morning, Connor. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Tiffany Thomas-Smith, and I am the owner of the Thomas-Smith firm, and also, as you mentioned, running for the Court of Common Pleas judge. Well, thank you for joining me. And uh, for those who are regular viewers of the uh, this show, you guys do know that I record these very, very early in the morning normally. And Tiffany was very uh, accommodating to record this with me <laughs> before work. And, uh, you know, it's really early. So and we're on a snow day. So very, very interesting time to be recording a show like this. But we're going to jump right into this. And Tiffany, can you explain to uh, my listeners and viewers what the hell is the Court of Common Pleas? Sure. That's it's a great question because no one knows. Um, so in Pennsylvania, there are four levels of courts. Um, actually, so there, the lowest level is the magisterial court. So let's say, for example, you get a, a traffic ticket um, or if you file something like a landlord-tenant claim. That goes to the lowest level, which is called the magisterial. Um, if those, then those cases aren't trials there. That's basically where things are filed for the first time. If those cases like criminal cases are certified for a trial, they go to the next level, which is the court of common pleas. So the court of common pleas is commonly known as the trial court. And in trial court, that's where you hear for your viewers, what is most important are family court cases, criminal trials orphans court cases and also civil trials that are going to that have you know not been resolved at that lower level. So there are 15 judges in the Court of Common Pleas, and each one of them could potentially hear any one of those types of cases. So again, what's most common are you know in family court cases, those are your custody matters. Um, those are your support cases and divorce cases. And anything relating to property distribution or, you know, asset distribution. So when those uh, cases are filed, they initially will end up before a judge in the Court of Common Pleas. If a criminal case is tried and is either going to be a jury trial 
or what's, what's also known as a bench trial, which is when there's no jury present, those would also be heard in the court of common pleas. So, and if you have a, a civil matter, like it's a breach of contract or something, and that, again, didn't get resolved at the lower level, those will also be heard at the court of common pleas. Um, and in orphans court, things like adoptions um, are, are also heard at that level. So that kind of is a breakdown of, of the court, court of common pleas. If the trials are heard and the parties want to appeal the trials, then they would go to the next level. That, or, and then if they're not resolved at common pleas court or superior court, and it's an ultimately, you know, the, it gets decided that this is going to go to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, um, that would be the highest level court. So that's our court structure in Pennsylvania. And frankly, I wish um, that our school system did a little bit more in civics like they did back in the day and explain that because this is what affects people every day. Um, and they should really know kind of what their structure is, what their political structure is, um, what their court structure is, because it's just an, it's a really critical part of what impacts them. And just so many people don't have that basic background about it. Yeah. And I think actually it kind of fun, uh, funny fits in to what I was discussing last week. I was discussing um, how precedent is set and how we were talking about uh, I mean, I was talking about the impeachment trial, but how we wanted to set a precedent and how a president shouldn't be able to attempt a coup, <laughs> which you would think is non-controversial. But um, but how the Supreme Court or other courts set precedent in how they rule. And basically what you're saying is this is how it works its way up the appeals courts and has the, uh, I mean, am I using the term right? Starry decisis. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that's what I was discussing last week. And, um, and I just wanted to, that like perfectly ties together what I was talking about there and, and the actual structure. And you're right. We don't really talk about, uh, civics in school. And that's why in 2019, when I decided to run for township supervisor, I didn't know anything about the Court of Common Pleas, but I was campaigning with people left and right for the Court of Common Pleas. I was at the the uh, the polling places in Doylestown, and it was like a madhouse because yeah. there were so many candidates that year. Um, so uh, I guess we can go a million different ways here, but um, when it comes to running – why why is it important that we have uh, a democrat in this position uh and i know this it's a kind of a tricky situation because it's judges are supposed to be nonpartisan in theory you know i i i'll make the argument you don't have to agree with me but i'll make the argument <laughs> that everyone is partisan everyone has bias and um I think it's important to have somebody that shares our values as democrats i mean i'm a democrat i'm a progressive um but why do you think it's important to have somebody that's a Democrat? And why are you running as a Democrat? So there's, the, gosh, there's, there's, I could go on and on and on about every aspect of what you just said. And I think I would start with saying um, the first question, the first part of the question was, why is it important to have a Democrat on the bench? And um, as I said, there are 15 judges just in this court of common pleas. And I think it's important to have diversity on the bench period, whether that's, excuse me, diversity in the form of your political affiliation or diversity in the form of your gender 
um, diversity in, in, for, in the form of your background. Um, so I, too, am a Democrat, obviously, but I, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I was I registered when I was 18. I've never changed my party affiliation. You know, I come from a family and of, you know, five kids and my, my parents, when they got married, actually, they married very young, divorced, had kids and then married. So I am from a blended family. That's how we ended up with you know, six kids. And the, fa- the values that my parents instilled are values of equality, uh, social justice. My parents were social workers. So that's a value-based thing. And I think that's when I say democracy and what that means to me, that's about my personal values. So that's what I'm bringing to the bench. As you said, values, not necessarily the party affiliation in and of itself. And the, but the party affiliation does mean something, right? I mean, we, we all, as you said, we all have bias. There, there's, there's bias in everything we do. And bias is a very interesting term because it doesn't necessarily always mean something bad. It means your opinion about something that's formulated based upon your life experiences. And um, so it's an interesting term for me because I don't want to go off topic, but in, in right now I chair the diversity and inclusion committee for the bar association. And I think that's a really, really important part of my career for me right now. It's an important part of what I am doing as a lawyer and as a citizen of Bucks County, because it gives me the opportunity to talk about things like that in a really healthy forum. So coming full circle back to your question, which is given that forum, like we have the opportunity to have a continuing legal education like session program on microaggressions. We had a continuing legal education program on bias. And it was phenomenal because Judge Waite, who sits on the bench, um, who's retiring, he's the only African-American on the bench right now, had you know, just this opportunity to share his life experiences and everything that he's gone through and talk about you know, how he is aware that we all have biases. You know? But the bias doesn't necessarily mean that we can't be informed and make good decisions. When, you're, when you know your bias and you're aware of it, then maybe you can change your behavior. Just like microaggressions. We talked about microaggressions in another session, which I think is so important for young people to understand what's happening. When you understand you're doing the microaggression and you're tempted to meaning specifically like as, you know, as a woman, and it, probably more so a white woman than a black woman, you're getting off the elevator because there's a young black male on the elevator. And you're like, if you knew that you're getting off as a microaggression, you might not do it because you know you're safe. But it's just, so the reason I'm saying all that is because that education piece, um, talking about those topics that are so ingrained in people's behavior that they don't really recognize when we talk about them and we educate about them, we raise that awareness and then we can try to fix them. So that's why we need diversity on the bench. Why I'm running is because I think I can bring those components to the bench. And um, I don't mean to cut I don't mean to cut you off, but um isn't it I want to say, isn't there only three females on the on the uh 
on the court or is it less? I, I don't even I don't even remember. I know uh, Carissa was elected. Carissa Liller was elected in 2019, and so was Jordan Yeager. Uh, Jessica Vandekam came up just short in in 2019. I remember. I don't know if it was two or three that were on the court, but out of out of all of them, it's not very many that are actually female. So that also brings in that that aspect of you know you can you can empathize. I can empathize with being a woman, but I I've never lived as a woman, but you know, you need to have that diversity of opinion, that diversity of experience as a judge, as a court overall, because otherwise, you know, if it's just uh, 15 straight old white men, then you're not really going to get very diverse opinions on things. Am, yeah, I, am I in the ballpark with that, with that number? You're absolutely on target. So we did have a really um, good opportunity in the, the past election to bring in some Democrats and to bring in some women. So Carissa Liller is sitting on the bench right now, and she is also um, one of her colleagues is, is Denise Bowman. So we do have two new, new uh, female judges on the bench. Judge Scott is a retiring judge who probably won't be um, continuing. Um, so we did, so there, there are you know, women on the bench. There will be three females on the bench. Um, but out of 15, that's not enough. And to your point, I can, I can be empathetic to someone who's transgender, but I don't, I, I don't share that experience. Um, and so when I talk about depth of the bench, you know, my vision is as we evolve as human beings, we will not allow biases to preclude people from being, you know, to who and what they want to be. So it shouldn't just be broken down by women and men. Um, the bench should be diverse on so many levels. But the only part that I can do that is my part is to be the best candidate. And I come as the best candidate being who I am. And who I am just so happens to be an African-American woman. Um, and it just so happens that there's never been another African-American woman who's run for this position. It would be one of my best friends is Native American. Um, you know, and she's from Cherokee. We met at Duke. She's a rock star. She's phenomenal. She's a judge out in Oklahoma. So you know, she oftentimes is you know, the one and only. You know, there's not a lot of Native American women running for judge yeah. out there. So, you know, the more we can expand the diversity, the more we learn about other cultures. And, and that's exactly what we need to just be a better society. Yeah. OK, so um, then we can go more into a little bit about you. What what kind of uh, aspects set you apart from the field? What kind of uh, things other than I mean, we've talked about some of it already, but if there's anything that like really you think sets you apart um, from, I mean, this is not a, a race just with Democrats either. This is going to be a race with Democrats, Republicans, technically independents can run. Um, I don't know if there are any, but, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get into something, some of that after, but what, what sets you apart? So I think what sets me apart, Connor, is, um, number one, why I'm running. I think the, the reason that I'm running. And the reason that I'm running is really because I know this kind of sounds corny, but it's really a calling. Like, I really feel like I have a calling to do something different 
in my career that's more impactful than I can do as an attorney helping clients individually. So, you know, I break it down as I was trained, you know, we get education and experience. So I'm trained as a lawyer. I've been practicing law for over 20 years. So I've got the experience of doing the work and my focus is on family law. And that's the other aspect that sets me apart from some of the other people that will may and will be running against me. Some of the other candidates don't have you can never say anyone has no experience because you go to law school and you might take a family law course or you might have handled a case. But this is the practice that I've committed myself to since I was a clerk. Um, you know, when I, my son's 22 and he was born when I did my clerkship. So it's been a while. And the reason that I'm dedicated to that practice is because I think that the most vulnerable are children um, and families. You know, we're talking about fractured families and families is the fundamental basis of our society. So that's the other aspect. I, it's my calling. It's my focus and my area of law. And it's also about my compassion, like being able to understand and empathize with each and every person that comes before you. And we were, I refer to that as compassionate justice. Um, so why, that's, why is that so important? Um, it's so important because if you don't understand that some part of your life experience is similar to the people that stand before you, then you can't really empathize with them. I think that happens in the court a lot because, you know, courts are made up of judges and judges are former lawyers and former lawyers are generally, very generally, usually, you know, highly educated white males who have privilege. Um, so you may not understand the woman standing before you. I actually, when I got up this morning, super early for this, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled up an article on my phone and it was about this woman that had been arrested because she worked, um, I think it was at either Popeye's or someplace. She worked in a fast food restaurant and she was arrested for leaving her 10 year old and her two year old in her hotel where she lived. Um, and um, some high profile athletes and others came out to support her and pay her legal fees because, you know, again, just a snippet of the article, she had been having someone check in on them every two hours, but she had to work. So, you know, so what do you do? Do you not work and not feed your child or do you go to work and have someone, you know, check in on it? None of it's the right answer. Right. Yep. The right answer is she needs to, the right answer is understanding the socioeconomic injustice and doing something about that. Yeah. So that's what <laughs> yeah, sets you're me gonna, apart. You're going to set me off on a rant there, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is something like I talked about last week also, or it was either last week or the week before, um, talking about um, people foregoing food to pay their rent, people foregoing insulin to pay their rent, people, for, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, per, I mean, personally, again, this is my opinion, not yours necessarily is, you know, I think there should be universal pre-K. I think there should be universal college. I think there should be uh, universal trade schools, all these things that give people opportunities that otherwise they wouldn't have it because there's a cost barrier. Um, and, you know, obviously as a judge, you don't have a say on those things, but well, not necessarily have a say on those things at least. So. But that's like as what I do and pushing for, you know, you you can see the push and the pull with different candidates and different positions and and how it all builds up 
to how this 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 woman has to leave her kids. It's all, I mean, I talk about it all the time. It's all choice and it's what we want to do about it as a society. Um, so yeah, you're going to, you're going to set me off. If you, <laughs> talking that wasn't about that. my intention. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's important. It's important yeah. to know these, the anecdotes and to, to know the lived experience of somebody that doesn't live necessarily. I mean, this could happen in Bucks County. It's not as likely because Bucks County is a much more socioeconomically Ad, uh, advantaged area. I mean, I'm trying to put it nicely, you know, yeah. people in Bucks County necessarily don't have to struggle the same way that people elsewhere do. Um, mostly. I mean, that's a very broad generalization. Of course. Um, yeah. But, but to, to that point though, you know, I, some do, mm-hmm. you know, the, so, so working with the United way has also been, just this really incredible eye-opening experience for me. So I was I was asked to be on the board of the, of the United Way, you know, earlier in the year, and I, I said absolutely. You know, this is a phenomenal opportunity to you know to focus on service because really, so many of my clients, it's divorce cases. They're high-end divorce cases in Bucks County, so we're not really talking about certain you know, community service. So this gave me a chance to get back into community service and. When I, when I say it was eye-opening, like it's phenomenal to me. One of the first projects we started working on was um, a tax issue. And, it, and it's the, so the facts of it are, if you live in a trailer park, uh, you know, and so your, your home is really technically a, ve- a vehicle, so it depreciates. But that trailer is treated from a real estate tax perspective the same way as a home. So although your house is depreciating because it's a mobile home and your you know, single family home isn't, you're paying the same tax. So as a, it's not a judge issue, it's not a, it's not a judicial issue, but it's a legal issue. And obviously that's something that you know, would come before the court. Why don't we treat those differently? So that's, you know, that's just a socio, another way to pinpoint the socioeconomic differences that do exist right here in Bucks County. There is food shortage in Bucks County. There is, you know, again, now you're going to have me going off. <laughs> well, you can go ahead. That's, that's why I have you here. Yeah. I mean, there, people have to realize that these aren't, you know, Philly issues or city issues. They're people issues. And each and every one of us could do just anything, something differently if you are able, you know, donate to the United Way. If it is a financial thing that you can do, do that because that does a hundred percent trickle down to giving that organization the ability to set up a food bank. Yeah, you know, I was listening to a podcast and literally I, I almost started crying about how food banks in Brooklyn and you know in certain boroughs of New York are they're out of food by noon. And people are getting online to get fresh vegetables and food at four o'clock in the morning and standing there with their kids. I mean, it is, it's heart wrenching. So back to the why, back to the why we need diversity on the bench, because we need to be talking about these things from the bottom up and also from the top down. So, you know, so we don't just resolve it by making, you know, global structure proposals for change. We actually have to have boots on the ground, have people doing that change. 
that literally has to come from both sides. And that's why being on the bench is just another forum to talk about justice issues. Really, we're justices. Shouldn't we be doing justice? Ideally. Ideally, yes. (laughs) And, you know, we see the court cases do they do allow or restrict freedom. They do allow or restrict liberty and just the prosperity of people based on decisions. I mean, I know, I know in 2019, a lot of the talk was about in, in the court of common pleas was about the family law. And that's, that's a major, major part of what you do and family law, making these decisions about families, they're life-changing. They're they're what sets, I mean, your early adolescence or, I mean, just basically from when you're born to you're 18, you are formed as a human. And if your life is changed by a decision, by a court, I would much rather have that court be something that is more compassionate and empathetic and understands the struggles of, you know, kids and families that necessarily don't have everything so easily. Um, but yeah, we'll roll into now because we we hinted on like this buck like this distinction of Bucks County and other than I, I you know I, I view things as as someone I'm only 25 so I view things as a as a young person in Bucks County um, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues about the aging population in Bucks County um, because. It's too, it's too expensive for young people to live. I was working four jobs before the pandemic and I still couldn't afford to move out. Um, I mean, now I have a better job, but (laughs) like not everyone, not everyone has that luck of just being like, yep, we got it. So I know millennials and people younger than me, zoomers, they're not just getting handed, um, living spaces and not just getting handed these jobs that we were promised from going to college. But that's my perspective as somebody in Bucks County. What what are some other issues that you see um, while you're running for county-wide position, especially in Bucks County? I mean, whether that just be the the dynamics of you know lower Bucks and Central Bucks and Upper Bucks, the differences there, and how you know I mean they they are very different places. Um, but yeah, I mean, any anything on that? Absolutely. So. As I mentioned, you know, you're 25, my son's 22, my other son's 19. And um, there, there are definitely um, reasons why people move to Box County. And it's the schools. And it's because it's an absolutely beautiful place to live. And you're, you know, centrally located between D.C. and New York. I mean, and there, there are just, and, and Philly is right here. There are so many great things about Bucks County. And that's one of the reasons I moved here. Um, but, you know, so the, I see less of an issue in the elementary schools. Okay? But then in the middle schools, there isn't a lot for kids to do. So if you don't, if you're not an athlete, you know, and if you're not, you know, talented in some way where your, where your parents can focus you, um, there isn't just a ton. So I think one of the factors that comes from middle school leading into high school is boredom. And, you know, from a community perspective, I live in Lower Make. There's no community center. So you see kids riding around on bikes. You know, it's great in the summer. um, But there's no community center in Yardley. I don't think there's one in Newtown. 
I don't think there's one in Quaker Town. So it's not something I could do as a judge, but really just as a community. If we started to think more about forming community centers and things that kids could do from, from that perspective in terms of service, civics, um, martial arts, things that are healthy and broad-based and, 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 and giving them the ability to broaden their scope, I think we'd see a lot less marijuana use. I think kids get super bored and then they start to experiment. And I think, you know, frankly, why do we have such a growth in the use of marijuana and, and opioids? It's because some of it, a lot of it obviously is mental health and addiction, but some of it, and I'm not saying, I'm not going to speak to whether or not marijuana is, um, you know, leads to other drug use. I'm just talking about what I've observed in the courts um, with my clients and in my communities. We just see a lot, you know, a huge increase of, of activity that's inappropriate because we didn't at 13 and 14 and 15, like you're saying, give our kids anything to do. You know, you obviously have a different mindset you, where you are now at 25 in your, in being an activist is stemming from something that's innate in you, but you also motivate other kids and because they see you and they want it, they want <laughs> to do this. I, I hope so. Um, so we, we need more of like a youth for unity. So I'm speaking on Saturday, the 20th with this phenomenal group, Youth for Unity. These young people are amazing activists. They're, they're protesting. They're doing peaceful protests. They're raising awareness about things. Um, you know, across our state, we don't do enough of that. We don't promote that type of activism. And I'm like, listen, you can be ultra conservative and, or you can be ultra progressive. Whatever it is that you're doing, if there's a healthy mindset in why you're doing it, then I'm willing to listen. You know, I'm willing to go listen to a peaceful protest. I, I, I did, actually. It was amazing. Um, I so support those kids in what they're, trying to, what they're trying to do. So that's one thing, one aspect of what needs to be changed. The other is understanding that, that those issues of homelessness, food shortage, um, you know, just li literally homelessness. Let's talk about homelessness for a minute. Homelessness means that you don't really have a bed to sleep in. So there's a lot of homelessness all over this county. There are kids sleeping with their friends, but not sleeping over, having to live with yeah. their friends. Um, there are people who, as a result of divorce or separation, are having to stay with other people you know, they don't have homes. People otherwise would be sleeping in their cars. We don't raise enough awareness about this. And it is because of the socioeconomics of it. You can't get an apartment for less than $2,000 in Bucks County, regardless of where you are. So people are really unable to maximize how they're able to live. We just have to be aware of these issues. And I think a lot of that gets swept under the rug because we're like, eh, you know, it's a great place to live. It is a great place to live. But for someone who, like you, like my son, who has college debt and lots and lots of it, student loans, yeah. you know, pandemic, no job lined up, and there's not a lot 
of opportunity here, it can impact you know, us on a global level. It impacts us not only from a socioeconomic perspective, but from an emotional and psychological perspective. There's a lot of stress, a lot of stress. And again, I think that ties back to kind of this vicious cycle of pandemic, stress, um, self-medication, sometimes drug use, and then, you know, leading us right back into this you know, uptick in abuse. So our PFA, which is protection from abuse courts, are overcrowded, overloaded, and we're not able to give the attention to it that we need. The criminal courts are absolutely being impacted, and we're seeing more people being held in the correctional facility um, with drug issues and mental health issues. And you know my stance on cash bail. Um, we shouldn't have it. It's, it's, not, it's not helping us. It's not helping the county. It's not making anyone safer. It's forcing people to be held in the correctional facility today in this blizzard um, who may have violated probation because they broke into a car or they stole some metal off of a house and they didn't have $500. So now they're potentially exposed to COVID in the prison. Those aren't the answers. There are other answers. And, and I got to tell you, Connor, I don't have all the answers. You know, I don't think anyone, no, any, if anyone's running, maybe one of the candidates will tell you that he or she has all the answers to everything. Um, they don't. <laughs> so that's why it does take the response, a responsible person to go back and you know, brainstorm and powwow with the other judges, powwow with the DA and powwow with people like you, with our constituents, to say, look, let's look at the problems in our county and how can we help them? And then again, that bottom-up, top-down approach to resolving these issues in Bucks County. Yeah, I mean, I'll come back to the cash bail in a second, but you already okay. beat me to the punch with uh, the youth, <laughs> youth for Unity stuff. Um, because I was going to ask you about, you know, how do we engage the youth? How do we, or, you know... Uh, obviously, there's been a, a really, really large increase in protests in the last year. I mean, I organized one myself. <laughs> it's, it's just the um, the energy is there, and we need to find a cipher to put it somewhere and <laughs> put the energy into something good and useful. And um, but I mean, I also just want to really quickly talk about um, the opioid epidemic because that is something that hits hits Bucks County really hard. Um, I did hear an interview with John Fetterman yesterday, who's running for the Senate in 2022, but he's also our current Lieutenant governor. And his big thing right now is talking about legalizing marijuana because legalizing marijuana, you can, re you can regulate it, you can tax it, you can put in, you by regulating it. You can be like, well, you have to be over 21, the same way we can do with, um, with alcohol. And, to be honest with you, I think if we did legalize it, kids would be less likely to use it because they're not going to be as cool or edgy or whatever. And, you know, for those people that need it medically or those people that just want to use it recreationally and when they're of age, I have no problem with that the same way as alcohol. But opioids, um, and I, you know, I have plans for future, future guests that have been affected by this in very much so, but the opioid epidemic, 
is something that really, really hits home in Bucks County. Um, and I don't know if you wanted to add anything on that just beyond what we already said, but I just know it is so, so prevalent. And it's really one of those issues that is kind of like behind the scenes. Like you don't really, you don't always recognize that somebody is, is addicted or is struggling with the addiction or is that, that needs to be helped. Um, I don't know, um, as a judge, what, what kind of impact can decisions on this have? Um, I mean, when it comes, when it comes to prosecution with the DA and bringing cases, what, what kind of leeway is there? What kind of, I, I don't really know wh- where I'm kind of going with the question. Cause I don't know the answer. I really, I genuinely don't know the answer. Uh, like what is the answer to helping people that are addicted to opioids? The answer. So the long answer is we need to understand better. What is the underlying basis of our mental health crisis? We need to start there. And when you start there and you look to the people that are most important in this, and I think the people that are most important are social workers, psychologists, and therapists, and scientists to figure out really why is this happening and how did this happen? Because you're right, it, it is, it is, you know, the opioid crisis to me is really kind of like akin to coronavirus. Like you, you just can't stop it. You want to stop it. You realize it's happening and you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. What do we do? Um, because it impacts everything. It permeates when it exists in a family, it, it permeates every fiber of that family because it impacts their ability to work and function. And that's an economic issue. It impacts their ability to care for their children um, or to be a partner for their spouse. So there's this whole area of family law that's impacted by the opioid crisis. Then there's a whole aspect of the criminal courts that's impacted by the opioid crisis because your question is a very good one. As a DA, you can certify, oh, this person's broken into 15 cars. Well, I own a car. I don't want someone breaking into my car. (laughs) So that person has to be um, addressed in terms of what they've done. That's an inappropriate, illegal thing to do. But when you look at why they've broken into 15 cars and it's because they're trying to, if it's because they're trying to feed their habit, is putting them in jail the right answer? It, It probably isn't. So that leads us go back to then what do you do? You know, even as if I'm sitting as a judge and I say, I don't want this person to be incarcerated, um, but I want them to pay restitution to the person whose car they broke into. So I want them to be able to get in some kind of treatment and recovery so that they can be able to work so that they can be able to pay for what they did. So that kind of leads me back to the social worker, therapist, psychologist. We need more and better mental health facilities. So we need to understand why someone would become addicted to an opioid. I think, you know, for, as a lay person, I often see someone had an injury um, and they started to take a medication and that medication was overused or abused or they you know, they became um, dependent upon it. And 
it's such a slippery slope. It's like crack. It's like, you don't, you don't turn back. You can't turn that faucet off. And, um, that's the science piece. Like what we don't, none of us, I don't think as lay people know enough about that. Like, how does that happen? No one wakes up at 17 or 18 years old and says, you know what? I want to be addicted to opioid. Yeah. So no one says that. Like, so is it the doctors that we go to, to, to stop writing scripts for that? Um, I don't know, but as a, as a judge, we can demand to be educated, even in criminal cases. I, we can, we could demand that the DA come to us and say, you know, we're talking about this mental health court and Bucks County is talking about this mental health court. Well, what exactly does that mean? What do they do? You know, there's only one living room. There's only so many places you can send someone. There's only so many different stratifications of, you know, of uh, treatment, like an IOP, which is an intensive outpatient, a intensive outpatient program. You can order that, but then there's got to be follow-up to make sure that that person stays healthy. So it's a complicated issue, Connor. I mean, it, it should be one of the central focuses of what we talk about. You know, as at, if whoever the judges are on the bench, you know, we, custody is there's three things I think, and we'll get to the cash bail piece, but I think, you know, we've got Cadence Law in custody because we're talking about, you know, a little child that lost her life because something fell through the cracks or our custody evaluation system isn't enough. It needs to be stronger. No one purposefully, well, that terrible man who murdered that child did something horrible. But I don't know that I could point to anyone in the courts that, you know, did anything purposeful. I, I can't say that I did. So our custody system needs to be reevaluated. Our mental health courts absolutely need to be evaluated, reevaluated, improved, and, you know, changed. And then there's cash bail. So I don't know if you wanted to get into that now or you wanted to get into another question. Yeah, no, let's just let's just jump right into the cash bail stuff. Um, I just do I do want to put in like a caveat here where um, you I know you're not I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but just because this is, it, you know, the opioid crisis hasn't come up all that much in my show. I try to cover yeah. a, a plethora of different things. I I do. And I, I will emphasize this again for, for your sake, that if you disagree with me, that that's OK. I just want to point out that the opioid crisis is an issue and it's a very major issue and should be taken very, very seriously. Um, but we should emphasize that throughout our history and throughout the, you know, 60 plus years or so of the war on drugs, um, black and brown communities have been targeted and gone. And I mean, by law enforcement, by the CIA, I mean, not necessarily CIA, the FBI more, um, for drug usage when it, especially when it comes to crack cocaine and i just want to point it out that because the opioid crisis in particular affects all walks of life but disproportionately i would say white people uh and white wealthy people are also affected by uh the opioid crisis that we see more action taken and the, the issue is taken more seriously than, say, the crack epidemic or um, other drug-related uh, addiction issues and mental health issues is because this doesn't 
this this crosses the the racial divide this crosses the class divide this class it, it's just affects everybody and you know I, again i don't i don't mean to to throw you on the spot but it's just i don't get to talk about that enough and as someone with my the way i look and my privilege i want to point it out that like I know people that have died from heroin. I know people that have died from opioid uh, abuse. I don't know people that have done crack, at least not that I know of, but, um, or like other drugs that have been, you know, you know, fentanyl or whatever it is. It's just, there's, there's, there's so many different issues that are underlying with the drug issue. And until we can end the war on drugs, and I have discussed that a lot, but ending the war on drugs and, and fixing, and like you said, when it's, you want someone to pay restitution. You don't want to be punitive to the point where they're just spending the right, the rest of their life in jail. They're not just going to be losing the rest of their life because of one or two or even three dumb decisions. I mean, it's a systematic issue. And yeah, so from, from that, we can dive into the cash bail piece. And, um, if you want to run with that, go ahead. Cause I, I, um, Again, this is another thing that I just haven't had enough to, like enough uh, time to talk about on the show enough. So uh, I know uh, it's really it really does end up becoming the district attorney's decision. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, the, the, so um, it that in terms of charging, that becomes the district. That is the district attorney's decision. And I just want to before we move on to that. So address what you raised about the war on drugs and, you know, drug crisis and, and how it evolves over time. And, you know, being a child of the 80s, you know, that that was, you know, the crisis, you know, when I was growing up. And you're right, it, it definitely impacted black and brown people, you know, much more so than it did in suburban neighborhoods. And, you know, the resolution of that, it was, you know, so criminalized. And I think it's never been cured, but it was recognized that, you know, in terms of, from a judicial perspective, sentencing guidelines have really evolved over time. So I want to say that there is some positivity to raising awareness. Some. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> some, I know that this, there's, some, a, there's a very big disproportion in, in, in sentencing when it comes to crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. Exactly. Um, but, yeah. the, but, the, what I, but what I'm trying to point out is, you know, because I have, you know, some friends that are federal defenders and, you know, this is a huge part of what they do. So, uh, you know, we do have mechanisms in place. Like we, we don't live in chaos. So the federal defender's office is full, chock full of these brilliant attorneys that recognize that and say, Hey, we can't have sentencing guidelines be the same for crack cocaine as they are for powder cocaine, because we are disproportionately incarcerating young African-American, you know, people of color, men and women, and we just can't have that. So it, when we, again, my, my answer to everything is education, right? You have education and you raise awareness, then we can start to make a difference. The, the opioid issue, you're right, it's probably, you know, is, is from, a, from a cultural competency standpoint, it is less of a, a challenge in terms of it's impacting, you know, black and brown people or white people. It just impacts families. So universally, we have to do something about this crisis that is impacting people and and our society. So with regard to legalization of marijuana, I can't really take a position on that. But what I, as I said, what I think is key is 
just educating ourselves about what the benefits are of legalizing as opposed to not legalizing and taking into consideration like how it impacts us overall as a society. Um, but one of the things that is challenging right now, if when you look at, I, I did, you know, kind of this analysis looking at the administrative office of the courts, because that gives you specific statistics around arrests and around, you know, all of the courts and the breakdown of where most of the cases are heard. And for the, the vast majority of the cases that are heard in Bucks County are drug-related cases. Even if they're not specifically, you know, you don't see the caption, it's a marijuana case or it's a drug case, if it's a case of breaking into um, a car or, or theft or, or even, you know, a, a burglary, which is breaking into a home, um, or stops, you know, or, you know, DUI stops, marijuana stops. The, the vast majority of those cases are resulting from things like that or, or incidents like that. And again, it kind of boils down to if you're stopped and arrested and you're brought before a judge and the judge says that you have to pay bail to be released from jail. Bail is an amount of money that you have to pay to avoid going to court. So, and, and you know, most late people don't realize that if the judge says your bail is $5,000, but you're required to pay 10%, you know, bail wouldn't be the whole $5,000, but it would be $500. So if you don't have $500, then you're held in jail until you're able to pay that bail. And for many, that, for, for all, actually, when you're being held, you have not yet been convicted for whatever that crime is. So if, let's say, your conviction would be, even if you were found guilty, you'd be sentenced to 30 days in jail. Well, because of COVID and because of the way that our, our you know, the limited structure of our system, some people are being held in jail for 60 days, waiting for their trial. And even if they're found guilty, they've already served more time than they would have. So that, that's a really simple breakdown of why cash bail doesn't work. And we did a CLE, and the CLE is a continuing legal education. And we did it with um, a police officer, because I think it's really important that we talk about understanding law enforcement and the importance of law enforcement in our community, and a criminal defense attorney, and a judge. And, we, and it was basically focusing on the courts, the community, and law enforcement. And one of those anecdotes that the defense attorney gave was, you know, way back earlier in his career, he had a guy that had stolen a TV. He walked out of, you know, you know a store, Walmart or something like that, or, you know, with a TV and he got caught. And so but he returned it, you know, got shoplifting. But because it was a TV, uh, let's say it was over at that point in time, whatever the threshold is for making it a felony. Let's say it was $500 or $700. He was charged with a felony, even though he didn't have the product. And it was really a simple retail theft, which you should get a summary, which is like a ticket. He was charged with a misdemeanor. Um, he might have actually, I want to clarify the story, but it was either, either a misdemeanor or a felony. It wasn't a summary offense as it should have been. And he went to jail. So, you know, Don Oliver is telling the story about how his client was held in jail for walking out of the store with the product that he actually ultimately had to re re return 
So the store isn't out anything. Societally, yes, you shouldn't do retail theft. It's not the right thing to do. But is that an appropriate um, punishment for someone who really could have just been written a ticket and been reprimanded? So that's those are two real examples of what happens with our cash bail system. And, and the other aspect of the cash bail system that we don't talk enough about is the economics of it. And, you know, and for the broader audience, when people say, well, Tiffany, you just can't have people just committing crimes and running all over Bucks County. You know, that's not what the intention is. You know, crimes are, are written and the crimes code is written to protect us as a society. But incarcerating people for doing things actually has the adverse effect, particularly with addiction and mental health issues, because you're not curing the problem. You're just exacerbating the problem. So you've got recidivism, which is repeating that bad behavior. And that causes us to be actually more in danger than if we took the time and energy on the front end to help people remedy the issues that they're facing, to, to make them able to be you know, good, healthy, contributing members of our society. Yeah. Rather than rehabilitate people, we punish them. And exactly. that's... Um, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but I've, I, you know, throughout that whole answer, I was getting like PTSD of, of my debates of, of cash bail and, and people saying, you know, they're going to just skip their trials and whatnot. Do you have any stats that would say that I, I'm, I know that they exist. I don't know them off the top of my head. Um, but that say like, it's like, you know, X amount of people show up to their trial when they have cash bail and I know, or they don't have cash bail when there's no cash bail. Um, and I know other States are working on getting rid of it. Like as a, as a whole, I don't know if New York, maybe New Jersey, New Jersey, yeah. New Jersey's eliminated cash, cash bail. And I, I, my, my, I don't have the statistics on that. It's more anecdotal. And the reason I don't have the statistics on that is because I really haven't had the opportunity to do that broad based comparison across, you know, New York, New Jersey, uh, PA versus Virginia. Um, but from in my review and analysis of what's working, what's not working, you know, I, I have, you know, my colleagues and other people that are running and, you know, the DA candidates, we're really looking at those statistics and you can't look at them in PA because they don't exist. Yeah. You know, that's the problem. So what, but from an anecdotal perspective, it, you know, the, the stats, and I could come back on another show, hopefully we'll do another of this and talk about this issue specifically is you know, people aren't, people are not, not showing up for trial on misdemeanor and summary offenses because they, you know, didn't pay cash bail. You know, there, you, you can have other mechanisms um, to have people be required to check in. First of all, you know where people live. You know, so long as there's a home address and a driver's license and a job and a family, that person, for the most part, is going to be exactly where they were. And, and citizens, people who don't have a criminal mindset that make mistakes, want to remedy those mistakes. So let's give human beings, you know, the benefit of the doubt that if you made a mistake once, you got a DUI, you don't want to punish your family. You want to cure that. You want to get, you know, some kind of 
accelerated rehabilitative disposition, which is, um, you know, an alternative way to remedy that and, and, you know, pay your penance and pay whatever your responsible financial, um, you know, the financial component of that and move on with your life. So people, if you get a DUI, people are going to show up. You don't have to throw them in jail. I think the the stats that are are stuck in my head too are are the same. It's like the same. I get the same argument, and it's about immigration and uh. immigration. Um, when people get, uh, you know, whether they get caught at the border or whether they're coming, whatever. Um, I think it's over ninety five percent of people of immigrants that are caught. In, in some sort of um, immigration trial, show up to their trial. Um, and I need I would need to probably uh, verify that extra over 95%, but I know that it's, it's in that high 90% of people show up for their cases. And the same thing is probably likely if you don't have cash bail. And if you don't have cash bail, that doesn't mean you just get off scot-free. You get to go run around the country and live as a, as a, like in a cowboy or something like that. Like <laughs> you still, if you, I mean, if you, if you commit another crime, you're going to be caught, you're going to be whatever. Um, so I just think it's, 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 it, uh, it's interesting to see a perspective from someone like you that has experience working as a lawyer and hopefully as a judge um, soon uh, on that issue. Yeah. Um, I guess the last question I have for you is after 2020, we had, you know, this gigantic election, the biggest election, you know, everyone says this about every election, but the biggest election of our lifetimes and sure. granted, it arguably was for the presidential election, at least in my lifetime. Um, I don't know, and this is a struggle as chairman myself of a municipal uh, committee, and for you as a candidate, what do you expect in 2021, being that it is an off-year election, people don't come out as much in off-year elections, and we've gotten Joe Biden elected, and I don't like, do you predict that we'll see a drop off in Democratic enthusiasm? Do you think that we'll see a drop off in Republican enthusiasm, be it that they don't believe in X, Y, or Z about the validity of elections or some mixture of the two? Um, you know, personally, it's a big worry for me. And I just, as I would like to see what you think about that. So, you know, I, I try to be the consummate optimist you know, but I'm also very much a realist. So uh, I think you hit it right on when you said, will it be a combination thereof? So there's a couple different factors. And I'll tell you what our, at least my team's um, efforts are to try to remedy that. So as you said, for those that don't know, an off-year election is an election where it's not the president. It's not a big election that a lot of people know about. So in this election, we are electing the district attorney, we're electing judges and we're electing what's called row officers. And, you know, so that's the prothonotary and the recorder of deeds and the treasurer and the sheriff of Bucks County. And so many people don't even know, as we talked about civics before, that those are things. If you ask, if you took a survey of like everyone in Pennsylvania, <laughs> you'd probably get like, 0.06% that knew what a prothonotary even is, right? So, so because of that, people just don't know, they're not as aware that there is even an election. 
So that's the reason that you get this drop in turn, what we call turnout. So the turn, how we how usually it's about 30% of, of, of turnout for people that come to these off-year elections. We want to try to hit, stay at that number, if not increase that number of 30%. And People, you know, the Demo- who are in the Democratic Party may be like satisfied now that, you know, we have a Democratic president and all of the excitement around having, you know, this diverse cabinet is, is wonderful, but they're satisfied. So maybe they're complacent. And in the Republican Party, you have a lot of people that are, you know, saying this, the election process, the electoral process doesn't work and they're dissatisfied with it. So I, I think that we actually may have somewhat of an inverse in that, you know, people who are in the Republican Party are going to come out even stronger and say, you know what, I want, I want, this is what happened, even though I don't believe that it was, uh, you know, there's some errors, there's some flaws there, but I want to, to gain my party power back. Um, and the, the Democrats that are satisfied may not show up as much. They may be like, hey, we did our, we did a great job. I'm exhausted. I don't want to come out and do this again. So we want to, for me, it's really, really important to not talk about party lines here. What's important to talk about is our democracy and the fact that we're all given the gift of the ability to vote and our our vote counts. Each and every one of our votes counts, whether it's for or against me. And when I did voter protection, you know, and I love my lanyard because it just it just brings me back to that day when we did that. I was just so proud to do it because it was about the vote. It wasn't really about who people were voting for. It was about the fact that those mail-in ballots do work. They absolutely did work. So my mission is to continue to educate people about the mail-in ballot, about the importance of voting, even on the off-year elections. Doesn't matter to me who you vote for. It just matters that you register, that you either select your mail-in ballot or you don't, and I encourage you to, because it's easy, and that you tell someone else to vote. And we are starting, you know, my team is starting, Team Tiffany is like, let's start with the young people. And that's, again, that takes me full bet circle back to why working with Youth for Unity and trying to um, set up voter registration drives at Bucks County Community College. I'm working with Tracy Timby over there and their team to do that. Like we're actually doing the work. That's the difference. You could talk about it and you can say, oh gosh, I wish more people turned out for the election. But if you don't do anything about it, then you're just contributing to the problem. And we wanna be, we wanna be the solution. So that's, that's why I think it may go. Um, and again, I'm less concerned about who shows up to vote. I, you know, I want people to vote so long as they're educated, because what we did see in this last election was regardless of party affiliation, we determined who our president was going to be. And he's the one making decisions right now. And he's starting to remedy a lot of all the negative effects of you know, the um, prior administration. It's got a lot of work ahead of them, yeah. but whatever we can, <laughs> lots and lots of work ahead of them, um, but whatever we can do to continue to remedy that, I, I, I'm 100% on board. Yeah. And I guess just to piggyback and finish this off is 
my job as chairman is to get Democrats elected. So (laughs) if you guys, if you guys are looking to help get Democrats elected, you can join your local committees. You can look, I joined my local committee in 2018 and now I am leading it. I am the chairman of that committee. Now I ran for office in 2019, done all this stuff. I've been chairman for almost about a year now. And that is solely because I decided I want to get involved. And my job is to get these Democrats elected because I think that they represent my values. And more so, I want to get progressives elected. And this is what primaries are for. And with all of that being said, it's important to look into the candidates, learn about what they stand for, learn about these positions, go to these vote local interview series or things similar to it to learn about these local elections because I have news for you. If you didn't pay attention to the down ballot races in 2020, we got smacked. And I, I, I mean, I will take responsibility for whatever I need to do. I hit like 5,000 doors in 2020 and during a global pandemic. Um, We need engagement. We need to take control of races that are not the presidency. And just focusing on the president is why we lose. In between 2008 and 2016, we lost over a thousand 1,000 municipal and local and state seats. That cannot happen again. We cannot afford that after, in 2017, picking up states in the county for the first time in a very long time. In 2019, taking the county for uh, the commissioner's race for the first time in 40 years or nearly 40 years. These things are so important. Uh, In the 143rd, in, in, in the state assembly, we had Wendy Ullman win in 2018. She lost in 2020 and we had record turnout. This is because of gerrymandering. This is because of so many different issues that happen locally. So get involved. If you're watching this, get involved locally, join campaigns, join committees, do everything that you can locally. And it builds its way up because in 2024, we're going to have the presidency in 2022. We're going to have the Senate in Pennsylvania and Congress across the country um, and the, and the governor's race in 2022. We can, if you want to just refine your door knocking skills or your phone calling skills, Join a campaign like Tiffany's or somebody else if you're not in Bucks County. Figure out what you can do in these off-year elections because it all adds up. So, Tiffany, uh, I don't know if you have your website, if you want to just plug that real quick or anything else, like any events. I don't know anything else like that if you want to share that with anybody listening. Absolutely. So we've got the website is it's we try to keep it easy. It's Tiffany Thomas Smith. Excuse me, without a hyphen. So if you uh, search www.tiffanythomassmith, you'll see under our events page, all of the events. We have a fantastic event, as I mentioned, with Youth for Unity. That's going to be a virtual event. Um, That's on my website. It's also on Youth for Unity's event uh, website page. My Facebook page is Tiffany Thomas Smith for Judge. I have all of my information there. You can certainly reach me there. You can email me. I have, excuse me, a fantastic team. And to your point, you know, I have this team of wonderful volunteers and also a campaign manager and field director. And we were out there being creative, 
We got record numbers of signatures already, but the work's not done. We got to continue to get the work done. And as you said, Connor, we have to turn PA blue and keep it blue. Now, I am running as a judge, so I will ultimately be impartial in that role. But I am, as I said, a lifelong Democrat. And those democratic values are so important to us. It really is what, it's the foundation of our community. It's the foundation of our country. And we just have to keep being vocal and being involved. So I thank you so much for for everything that you do. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's been a pleasure. And um, thank you for supporting everything that is the politics of, of Bucks County in the right way. Well, thank you for joining me and uh, getting up early to do this and sticking it through. I know these these Zoom interviews can be a little tricky sometimes, but uh, thank you again and uh, good luck in the primary and you have my support. So I I appreciate you uh, joining me and I'm sure we'll be talking soon. We will. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you guys for listening to that interview. I hope you guys enjoyed. If you did, Feel free to go check out Tiffany's campaign. Uh, and if you really enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did, you could be so gracious as to hit the subscribe button down below to this channel. It really helps us grow. And if you made it this far, you probably enjoyed it. Um, so hitting a thumbs up, hitting the subscribe button, leaving a comment, all that stuff helps a lot. Or if you're listening to the audio version of the show, you can feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or the Spotify app. Either way, that really helps the show grow and get uh, our reach a lot larger. And we can grow the progressive movement as a whole. If you guys have suggestions for guests in the future or topics you'd like to see covered, please let me know. And with all of that being said, be sure to follow the show on facebook.com slash the show, or you can follow me on Twitter at con O'Hanlon. The show is also on Instagram at the con show. Thank you guys so much. I really hope you enjoyed that one. It was definitely illuminating for me. And uh, I hope you learned something about uh, local government. So thank you guys. And until the next time, stay safe. Peace. Mm-hmm.